0: Welcome Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we talk with Sherry L. Smith about her book, Bohemians West, Free Love, Family, and Radicals in 20th Century America. Let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast and who produces it. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Redd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. For better or worse, it's a one-man operation with me, Brennan Rensink, playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, and everything else. I'm Associate Director of the Red Center and an Associate Professor of History at BYU, neither of which roles trained me for the current task, but I do have a lot of fun doing this because I'm passionate about better understanding the North American West, the region I have called home for most of my life. In each Writing Westward episode, I have a conversation with writers of the region academics, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, anyone authoring anything about the West. My goal is that these conversations will spark listeners' curiosity, to dig in a bit more themselves, and think differently about the people's histories, environments, ideas, and identities that make up the North American West, or that we ascribe to the region. Please leave reviews or comments on whatever platform you are listening, and let me know if we're succeeding. For updates or communication, please follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find all episodes on our website, writingwestward.org, or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or most all major podcast distribution platforms, apps, and services. To learn more about the BYU Red Center, stay tuned, and at the end of the episode, I'll offer some additional information about our projects, programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research, and events. Find the center at redcenter.byu.edu, that's R-E-D-D Center. For more regular updates, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at BYU Red Center. Now, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Sherry L. Smith is a well-known historian in the American West, a university distinguished professor of history emerita at Southern Methodist University, the author of multiple award-winning books, a former president of the Western Historical Association, and the recipient of numerous honors. You can explore more of her work at SherryLSmith.com, which I'll link to in the show notes. It's thrilling to see a scholar such as Sherry take all of her expertise and skills and apply them to uncovering and beautifully narrating a pair of biographies as she does in Bohemian's West, free love, family, and radicals in 20th century America, published just this year by Heyday Books. In Bohemian's West, she presents an uncommonly detailed and intimate story, but does so uncluttered by the exhibitions of scholarly apparatus and methodology, even though she clearly builds the narrative and supports it by using them. She sifts through an overwhelmingly large archive of letters and documents, and uses them to unfold the intertwining lives of Erskine Scott Wood and Sarah Bard Field, whose early 20th century lives intersected with bohemian free love philosophies, political activism and labor and the women's suffrage movement, and the heady days of the growing arts and literature scene in Northern California. Not only did Erskine and Sarah live astonishingly complicated lives, but the records they left for Smith to weave into a narrative offer an uncommonly intimate view of their joys and sorrows, their triumphs and conflicts, and not just their own, but those of a broad cast of characters in their families. We discover as much about the political, cultural, and social scenes in early 20th century Oregon and California as we do about the universal truths of the human experience, of contradictions within all of us between our aspirations and the realities we actually live. Readers will learn about themselves as much as they will learn about history, and perhaps more. It's a remarkable book. And Smith was clearly the writer for the job. She uses academic rigor to tell good history, but doesn't let it get in the way of intimate storytelling and literary grace. Sherry Smith, welcome to Writing Westward.
1: Thank you, Brendan, it's great to be here.
0: I'm excited to uh, talk with you, talk about this book. You warned me that it might be a little spicier than what we're used to doing on the podcast, but it wasn't as spicy as I thought it might be with I'm the, sub, with the <laughs> subtitle of free you? love and so forth, but Right. Right. <laughs> right. I was wondering what it yeah, was that uh, I I you mean, were asking me to do here.
1: Yeah, I know. It it's not as steamy as it might the title might suggest. This is true. Yeah. But it's still pretty radical. It's it is. pretty
0: radical. These are some fascinating lives that we're going to talk about today. Why don't we start with uh, some brief thumbnail sketches about who Charles Erskine Scott Wood and Sarah Bardfield Ergot, I guess, uh, her, with her married name, what were the lives that they lived before they were introduced in 1910?
1: This is the hardest part to do briefly, particularly yeah. because Wood was 58 when they met and had a very interesting and complicated life, but I'm going to do it briefly. He was um, an army officer, went to West Point, forced to go really by his father, engaged in the Indian Wars, as we call them, uh, including the Nez Perce War, got to know Chief Joseph and was extremely sympathetic with him and the Nez Perce cause as a soldier, which made him particularly interesting to me. He then became a lawyer, ended up living in Portland, Oregon, where he was quite successful as a lawyer and also as a cultural figure in Portland. But neither being a soldier nor a a lawyer was ever what he really wanted to be in life. He saw himself as a poet. And so he was very frustrated that he had not been able to live the life he wanted. He got married. He loved his wife. He loved his children. He had family responsibilities that he wanted to live up to. But he also, for the last third of his life, wanted something different. And so he also wanted to live his not only his um, sort of personal ideals, but also his political ideals. And he was radicalized along the course of his life. I can't tell you exactly when. But he became, as he described himself, a philosophical anarchist. And by that he meant he put individual freedom as the highest value he wanted no government or church interference in life to the extent that was possible to still have a society and a community. He was not a bomb-throwing anarchist. In fact, he was quite opposed to the use of violence. And I've been thinking about him a lot as things have been going on in Portland today with you know, yeah. these sorts of issues. Uh, he would have been appalled by the use of violence on any side. Uh, but he was an anarchist. And, um, and then finally, he was an advocate of free love, and he was quite outspoken about all of his radical positions. He— wrote a lot of uh, essays and things like that for Northwestern periodicals primarily. So he was a man of great depth, of uh, artistic inclinations. He was also wealthy, and he was dissatisfied. So that's who he was. Sarah Bardfield was 30 years younger than him. She was the daughter of a very devout Baptist man and lived in a patriarchal household, as did Wood. And that's not that unusual. Uh, By the way, Wood was born in 1852, and she was born in 1882. I should make that clear. Uh, Her father also uh, sort of squelched her own hopes, uh, and I— for for going to the University of Michigan, for instance, and he said she her only option was a Baptist college, and she didn't want to go there. So her act of rebellion, at least as she saw it later on in life, was to get married
0: to, right a, ba- to a Baptist to minister. To a Baptist
1: minister, right? So it doesn't seem very rebellious to me, but um he was thirteen years older than her. He was going off to Burma to be a, a missionary of sorts. And so that was pretty romantic and exciting. So she married him, hardly knew him, married him at age. She had just turned 18. So they had a decent marriage early on, but fairly quickly she also discovered that he probably wasn't the right man for her. She um, eventually got very involved in progressive politics. She and Ergot, Reverend Ergot were Christian socialists and ended up in Portland in 1910 when he was fired from his, his pastor position in cleveland because it was too radical for them and they went out to portland and so that's how she ends out there she has two small children by this time in her life so that's the setup in 1910 when they meet
0: so they're introduced by um a a mutual friend uh, clarence darrow who is quite a well-known you know figure in that kind of that period in history and he thinks that they might get along well, uh, and maybe they'd get along a little too well. But what is it about Erskine that you think really draws Sarah in? I mean, she's already coming in a little bit discontented in her own marriage and life. Like, there's she wants to do other things. What is it about Erskine that she finds so captivating?
1: A number of things, and I think it is interesting that. It is Clarence Darrow who introduces them, and the reason that Sarah knew him was because her sister (laughs) was his mistress. I do think that's very interesting. (laughs) Clarence Darrow was not an open advocate of free love, but he certainly lived it in his personal life. So he puts them together because – Sarah was very reluctant to go to Portland. She thought it was the end of the earth. There would be nobody interesting there. She didn't know what she was going to do or who she could talk to about ideas that mattered to her. And, and Darrow knew that Wood would be the person that she could find those things. So, um, he put them together in a dinner at a dinner. He had them sit next to each other. Now, Wood was, from my perspective, exceedingly handsome man, even at age 58. And Sarah was not beautiful, but she was quite attractive in her own way. And I think, first of all, they were struck with one another's physical appearance. Uh, I'm not saying they were sexually drawn to each other immediately, but there was, without doubt, fairly early on mutual admiration on the physical level. But more importantly, they shared a number of things. First of all, their political values. Secondly, their poetic and artistic inclinations. She loved literature. She loved to talk about it. And she found in him a uh, receptive uh, con- conversant about those things, and then finally they did share an unhappiness in their marriage. Although none of those things came out immediately, but it didn't take long for for that to to come out as well. So they had those things in common.
0: Yeah, so they're kind of sympathetic souls from you know from from the get go, and they seemed yes. to kind of answer what each other was kind of looking for in in a number of ways. Uh, Erskine helps her get a job uh, writing for an Oregon newspaper and sent down to Los Angeles as a correspondent because she starts to, be, to begin thinking about well, – and then they do begin a physical affair as well. Uh, she's working for him as an editor. He hires her as an editor for his poetry, and the relationship develops. Yes.
1: Right. The really sad thing about that is that Reverend Ergot knew his wife was dissatisfied. He was trying. He loved her. He, you know, He was trying whatever he could do to help her be the person that she thought she was and wanted to be. And so he thought, wow, you know, she seems to like this Wood fellow, and he's quite an interesting guy, and he had this chest full of poetry that he had been writing for decades on railroad trains and camps and things like that. So he suggested, the husband suggested to Wood, perhaps my wife could help you as your literary editor. So that's how they really began to be – together more often than not and um so from that the affair began and pretty early on sarah became convinced particularly after the relationship was consummated that she could no longer stay married to her husband although she kept it secret as it turns out for quite a while yeah but what could she do how could she extricate herself and what how could she earn a living beyond what Erskine was paying her so he suggested trying journalism as a gambit and her sister mary field was also a journalist. So he set up this deal for her to go down to the very famous McNamara trial in L.A. and cover that and send dispatches back to Portland, which he heavily edited before he turned them over to the editor. So that was her first effort to find a profession, Um, and it didn't really work, but it was the first time she was really on her own in her whole life. And so that was uh, important for a number of reasons.
0: And it gives her a taste of that uh, independent life and then also the contrast of she has to then go back to Portland. And back to um, her her home and, and family situation that she now just so clearly knew she did not want to, to be in. Exactly, um, right. I, I do find, I mean, it's, and you don't really hammer on this much in the book, but kind of the real tragedy of Urgot, um, her husband, who, it really does strike me as he is so supportive and he's encouraging her to, to, you know, do journalism do poetry like you know uh later we become a suffragette like all these things uh to really support her for her to be happy and it's just it's just not on not on the cards is it
1: it is not and that is one of the saddest things for me about the story is they really become two they really are two very different people and so nothing he can do is going to change her heart and uh, it was exceedingly difficult for both of them but I think in this equation it's always harder to be the one who is left because you are not in control yeah and so yeah yeah.
0: and on the other side Erskine was married and we have his wife uh nanny and I mean there's another there's another tragedy there as well and you you do get into that and kind of show that it wasn't all just um, rainbows and, and lollipops you know there was uh, there's a lot of tragedy and heartache on the part of uh, Sarah Ann Erskine Ben, on the part of their uh, uh, spouses, their, their children, um, other mistresses. as Well, and maybe we'll talk about. Uh, but there's a lot of sadness in this. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so much joy in the in their lives, but there's a lot of sadness as well.
1: Yes, that is really true, and was a point that I really wanted to make. And it became clear to me very early on in this project that. People were going to react strongly to this, and they were going to react in different ways to the people and the story itself. And this became clear to me when, very early on, I was talking to my husband's daughter, who is married to a Baptist minister and who has two children.
0: Oh boy! And I was showing,
1: yeah, and I was showing her some of the pictures and telling her the story, and she just sort of stopped and turned to me and looked at me and said, "I don't like this woman." And I thought, okay, yeah. You know, people have strong feelings about the issues that are at the core of this story. They are still very important today. These are not simply historical issues. These are human issues. And so I, I think I would have done it anyway, but I always think about Trisha, And I want to make sure that I bring to my telling of the story a sensitivity to the pain as well as the joy of it. And there's lots of opportunities to do that.
0: Yeah, and it makes these three-dimensional characters and it makes them real people which I mean you say in in the beginning you say that their lives have something to teach us today and you're not going to accomplish teaching any of those lessons if you don't really kind of show them in their full complexity right Uh, but to get back to the story so she returns to Portland and her she finds in a way you know salvation uh, you know emotionally and socially by uh, getting politically active uh, in this in the women's suffrage movement Um, And this is something of a uniquely Western story, which is something I want to try to come back to, what makes this a very Western story. But what's the Western um, suffrage movement uh, at this point in 1912? In
1: 1912, suffrage was still being fought primarily on a state-by-state level. So in 1912, I think it's the third or fourth time now that Oregonians are going to have women's suffrage on the ballot. And of course, only men are going to decide the outcome of that election. So in 1912, Sarah was actually encouraged by a friend of hers who was very involved in the movement to join the state suffrage campaign. And that meant going out throughout the state and lobbying and encouraging people, of course, to vote, men, to vote for suffrage. And she was terrific at at this job. She was – I don't know if she was a natural-born orator, but between her own sister, who was an excellent speaker, and Erskine, who was also a well-known orator – I think by watching them, she had learned a lot about how to do it. And she was, again, young and vibrant. And what was happening is she would go out to these little towns and get on top of a car and a crossroads. And uh, this young, striking, articulate woman would attract a crowd. And they weren't always sympathetic to her cause, but they were generally pretty willing to at least listen to her. So she was traveling all over the state. And this offered not only the experience of being involved in a very important social movement and, and honing her skills as an organizer and an orator and a political advocate, but also opportunity to be away from her household, which was becoming increasingly difficult to live in, and also meet up with Erskine in various places, because he was out there stumping for Woodrow Wilson, even though he was a, <laughs> an anarchist, he was also a practical man, so he did a support the uh, Democratic Party in these days. So that was a really important growing moment for her. And also it made her feel good to get this job from her own connections and have a source of income outside of Erskine's because she was a feminist who was bothered by the fact that if she left her husband, she was probably going to be dependent on Erskine for a while at least because she simply didn't have the experience uh, to to support herself. And she was hoping to be able to keep her children as well at this time. Yeah. So that, that was her first step into the suffrage movement. And. And in 1912, it was still primarily done on a state-by-state basis. That will change in a few more years. But at this date, her entrance into the suffrage movement is on the state campaign. And happily, in 1912, November 1912, both Woodrow Wilson won, and the men of Oregon voted in favor of women's suffrage as well. So it was a
0: success. For both of them, for Erskine as well. Right. As he's outstumping for Wilson. But this is also a challenging time for Sarah because, you know, at the same moment that she is – out having these real kind of personal successes and finding fulfillment and being politically active and kind of becoming like a noted figure she is becoming aware that Erskine is living his, you know his uh, somewhat of a, his free love lifestyle and he has other affairs going on how does this start to how does this start to play out in their relationship
1: she discovers that he has maintained another relationship with a woman who had been his secretary for many years when she is still in California for the McNamara trial, and she was absolutely stunned. I would say that she was pretty naive. Uh, When they began their sexual relationship, she just went, you know, over the top. Uh, And her letters are just unbelievable. She talks about dropping a box of adoration at his feet. And I mean, just, you know, as I say in the book, I'm surprised he didn't run the other way because she was just so incredibly starry-eyed and crazy about him, but he was pretty straightforward with her about the fact that, yes, I love you, but I'm not promising anything, uh, but she didn't want to believe that. She couldn't believe that, I think. She believed there were soulmates, that surely she was the most important woman in his life, but she discovered that he, he might have put her first, but there were other women, so they begin this conversation that lasts for about seven years about monogamy in a free love relationship, And she wants it. She makes it clear that's what she is, even at times, almost sort of trying to demand it of him. But he also makes it clear that he will not make that promise to her. Now, I don't want to suggest that he was a wild-eyed you know, philanderer and uh, crazy, crazy sex maniac. But he did love women, and he seemed to always have to have at least one woman, and his wife was no longer that woman to be um, a partner of uh, in love and sexual relations. And so he was not going to put that aside, even for Sarah.
0: Yeah. And I think when readers or when with people today, they hear free love, they have this kind of 1960s idea of, you know, uh, that that's very much antithetical to monogamy and they don't see how those might be compatible. But um, Erskine and Sarah and the free love movement, I mean, during this time, is somewhat different, right? It's it's love that is free from the strictures of you know uh, of the law and you know legal uh, authority and religion that they're it's, they're free from having these outside institutions um, authorize their love or say that they can or cannot leave that relationship, right?
1: Brendan, that was a beautiful summary, exactly of how <laughs> Erskine saw it and Sarah came to you know, she wasn't a free lover in any way when she first went, she hadn't really thought about that, I don't think. But yes, you you just nailed it, you got all the key elements of how they saw things. So it didn't translate into promiscuity, but it also did not translate into promises of monogamy. Right?
0: Yeah, so, so there there's yeah. some there's some tension there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we see that play out for, you know, for a while in their relationship as they're simultaneously trying to negotiate uh, you know, their existing marriages. um.
1: Yeah, I I think I should say um, for the audience's sake that Nanny Wood's wife certainly knew who he was and what he was doing. She refused to divorce him. She was a Catholic. That was part of it. But I think she also really didn't want to deal with the social costs of being a divorcee uh, she didn't want to. She loved him. I mean, in spite of this, she loved him and wanted, I think, kept hoping that he would outgrow this, you know, yeah. or something, you know, that he would eventually. Certainly,
0: he's 58 now. He should be, know, uh, be settling town.
1: <laughs> right, right. So she was going to hang in there no matter what. And she did. She refused to ever divorce him. And he would not initiate divorce proceedings against her. Yeah. He just wouldn't do that. But, um, That's yeah. That's
0: seeming weird contradiction, not necessarily contradiction, but. He's such a complicated man because, on the one hand, he is somewhat openly having mistresses and so forth, but on the other hand, he's a doting father um, who seemingly just loves his children and treats them so well. And aside from the fact that he does have mistresses, he doesn't seem to be going out of his way to be cruel to his to his wife at home. He he is he's just a, a ball of of contradictions.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, that's what makes him such an interesting character because he, on the one hand, uh totally believes in labor unions and economic justice, and that's his personal philosophy. But in his work, he is using his skills and his practice to defend huge corporations. Uh, so th- his life is just riddled with paradox. And, you know, he and he would often be this would often be pointed out to him. And he would say, yeah, you know, I know, but this is what I really believe, but this is what I have to do to make my living and take care of my family. So he would always find a way to explain it and get around it. But, but yeah, he is uh, full of contradictions. Sarah, I think, is more consistent in her position. Hmm. Now, other people would say, let me just add, that he is, well, some people who don't like him at all. And uh, I can think of a number of his famous historians who would tell me, I don't like this guy at all. And it's men who don't like him. That uh, he's not only narcissistic, but he is really deceitful, and he's creating all of these explanations to cover up just what are his sexual drives and, and whatever. I, I don't see him that way, actually. I'm a little more sympathetic to him. I do believe that the things he sees as ideals were, in fact, what he was striving for, but the reality of his life often interfered with being who he really wanted to be for quite some time.
0: Well, I think we can all see some of ourselves in that, right? We all have things we're striving for, but reality tends to get in the way. Um, yes, definitely. So hope, hopefully that gives us a little sympathy for him. Yeah. To get back to Sarah's story, in 1912, she reveals to her husband uh, what is going on. She ends up getting somewhat sick and moves down to California for tuberculosis treatment in 1912 and never goes back to live again with her family. And then eventually starts she gets involved in the suffrage movement, Another political movements there in California and then eventually does push for a divorce by going over to Nevada where uh, they could get this divorce. And her husband really fights her tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the while knowing that she may well, even though she's becoming increasingly economically independent, she may well lose her children over this. And this is another yeah. thing that one of the real things that was kind of hard to get over in this story is that she is really putting everything on the line, even losing her children for this relationship and erskine uh, and maybe this is the reason why some people really don't like him uh he's not putting there's not much being risked on his part how do you kind of reconcile that or how did she reconcile that in the moment
1: yes so you're getting to tension number two tension number one was the monogamy tension number two was the timing of when they would finally be together and the sacrifices each was willing to make to achieve that end. And she was doing all the sacrificing, at least that's how she saw it. And I think that's how readers will see it as well. This was a radical thing for her to do, really radical, to leave a a minister husband, uh, to risk losing her children, to offer this fellow and this was quite well known actually in portland the relationship became known um who was himself a radical and a rake uh you know she was just i this uh, there's things about her i don't like but i do like this about her she decided this is what i want in my life and i'm going to do it and she leaped off and she did it so uh Yes, this was a big, big thing, um, much bigger for her, and she gave up a lot more. And she, once the divorce is final and she realized, she had been hoping, and Erskine had been encouraging her to believe that she might be able to at least retain custody of her daughter. Once that was finalized and she lost custody of both children, uh, she realized, whoa, you know, now I, I could be very much alone, because she never really knew for sure that he was going to come out, that he was really going to join her. There's also that, right? So she then at that point really begins to begin to put some pressure on him about when are you going to step up and do something to demonstrate your commitment to our relationship. It took her a long time. There was a 30-year age difference. He was a college, you know, and a law school graduate. She was a high school graduate. He had a lot more Kind of cultural, intellectual, and economic power in the relationship for quite some time. But as she does go on her own and get involved in suffrage and uh, give up so many things, she does become more assertive in the relationship and is pressuring him to come and join her. And he puts her off. And I do think this is both maybe frustrating but admirable about him. He felt he could not leave his law practice, Portland or his family, Until he received this big windfall for a lawsuit that had been going on for years, he wanted to wait until he got that windfall. Then he could set up very robust trusts for his wife and each of his grown children. And he put his, you know, sort of feet in the sand on that. He was not going to budge on that. He was not going to leave Portland and retire from his law firm until that happened. So and that that's that's from his position, from his point of view, that's why he was hesitating.
0: And when he does finally do it, he does. He sets up to make sure his wife and family will be financially secure um, he does. in his absence, yeah. which is which is admirable. It's interesting then, so Sarah, you know, in this moment then, uh, you know, she's she's divorced, doesn't have custody of her children. Uh, Erskine is not living there in California. I know she, I don't know, intentionally or just naturally, again, turns to getting politically involved. And this is where she has some of her real biggest moments. She goes on this cross-country Road trip, and it is like an old tank of an Oldsmobile. Or, I mean, it's, <laughs> it it's actually
1: a... a new tank, it was a new car, but oh. it looks like a tank, yeah. Right?
0: But I mean, it, this is well before the era of interstate highways, freeways, you know, and um, uh, and cross country road trips. But she goes on this huge suffrage tour touring, I mean, across the western United States with you know, important stops, you know, in Salt Lake and Wyoming and other places where suffrage had been, I mean, decided, you know, for I mean, at that point, what 40 years. Women yes. have been voting, and although I guess they've been disfranchised in Utah um, for part of that. For but a while. Right. Um, but uh, on this cross-country road trip, ends up at the East Coast and is having, you know, audiences with politicians and, and with, I mean, having like a real national moment. I just find it interesting that, you know, it seems that often in these moments where her relationship with Erskine was the most troubling or her relationship, you know, now being divorced and losing your children, she does then find fulfillment in this other part of her life. Um, so, what does that do to erskine though, as she then goes off and suddenly starts to have a little bit more power in the relationship she now is a has notoriety of her own. she's maybe not going to be entirely dependent on him financially or maybe even emotionally what is that How does he react to her successes as she goes off to the east coast?
1: He reacts I think quite positively actually. He also was a feminist. He was an advocate of women's suffrage. He was an advocate of Sarah developing her own talents and becoming the person that she was meant to be as well. The thing about Erskine is I think he really loved women and I just don't, I don't mean that just in a physical way. He really liked women and women really liked him. And so for all of his mistresses maybe with the exception of one who was richer than he was, but um, the other women that he had these relationships with, he was cultivating them as people as well as lovers. And he certainly wanted to do that with Sarah as well. So he would sort of kid, you know, I'm worried you might find somebody else, but he wasn't really worried because her letters, she begins to sort of temper her super over the top enthusiasm (laughs) for him as time goes on. And she begins to be a little more critical of him, but all of her letters to him during this cross-country tour are about how you know she misses him, how uh, when she gets to Chicago and to New York and Washington, she's going to be trying to promote his poetry. So she does everything she can to reassure him that she is not going to lose interest in him. And it is a really important and interesting story in American history. The National Women's Party and this push now for a federal amendment, they're going to go beyond the state-by-state state piecemeal thing and do it Try hopefully in one fell swoop. And so that is how Sarah gets involved. And uh, this petition that she's carrying in the car was one that was signed at the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco. And Sarah was in charge of the booth there. So they had – it was four miles long by the time they delivered this petition to Congress. And as you say, it was a remarkable adventure to motor across the country in 1915. There were hardly any roads and certainly nothing like we have now. Uh, So it was – and it was finally a publicity stunt. I mean this was Alice Paul's idea. And they wanted to have Western women voters and Western men voters who presumably had political power say to Congress and to President Wilson, we are demanding that you guys move forward on the 19th Amendment. And so – Along the way, the whole idea was to get attention and publicity about this. So they were trying to generate news stories and so on and so forth, and they were incredibly successful in that. So Sarah does become something of a national figure by the time she arrives in New York City and Washington, D.C. And they go to Congress. They deliver this petition. She meets, the you know, kinds of famous senators and representatives, and then they go to the White House, and she meets President Wilson. So, But through all of this, Erskine... Well, you know, I mean, okay, now she is hanging out with presidents and he's back going to these little soirees in Portland. So I think (laughs) occasionally he might have felt a little sorry for himself. But essentially, I do think he was excited for her. He encouraged her to go. He wanted her to have this moment in the limelight. But once there, because she was so good, she went to some fundraising thing and raised, I don't know, $14,000, which was a lot of money in those days, in uh, 30 minutes. And Alice Paul wanted her to stay. And help, but she would not consider that because Erskine was in the West, so she was going to go back West.
0: I think that's great that he loves her, you know, in her independence and finds joy in her successes rather than you know resentment or jealousy.
1: Yes, because freedom for everybody is what he wanted, and he wanted her to be free to be who she was. Uh, She couldn't make him be who he wasn't. You know, he was going to be an advocate of free love. But he wanted her to also be free uh, in, any, in every possible way and hoped that they could together make a life where they could both be who they were uh, and with the reduction of some of these issues as time went on. And that is, in fact, what happens. But we, I don't want to get too ahead of the story. But I do <laughs> want to point out, and I think this is really interesting, Brendan, that the questions you're asking me are really about Sarah. And the reason for that is that in this story, the arc of the story, Erskine doesn't really change. He is who he is. In uh, at age fifty eight, he is not going to change. Sarah is the one who undergoes change over time here, and so that of course makes it. She's the more interesting character.
0: Yeah, I, I it it struck me that wow, this story really is being driven by Sarah's narrative, and that's who we're following throughout. But I hadn't considered that that's maybe the main reason why she's the one who's changing and growing and um, and facing the biggest challenges and overcoming them. And huh, I hadn't thought of it yes. that way.
1: Right, yeah. I I conceptualized it as a dual biography or a biography of a relationship, but an early reader of the manuscript said, this is really Sarah's story, and I think that is true because she does undergo change.
0: Erskine eventually does uh, join her in California in 1918, and they don't live together immediately. Um, There were some still—well, at at that point, her now ex-husband had also moved— to the San Francisco area, so her children were around, and wasn't he threatening that you know the kids can never be in the presence of erskine and uh if they were living uh, openly together, you know he may deny her access to the kids so there was some tension there um and and actually eventually there is a uh they're, they're in a car a car crash, and her son is killed, and she's in that uh, that crash as well um, which leads to a lot of emotional trauma and uh, for her but this is the time then when her and Erskine do uh, they're now living together, kind of maybe as she had, had always wanted. Um, and you paint a real striking picture. So now, so this is now into the 1920s. They're kind of doing poetry more full-time. It's what Erskine always wanted. They have a, a nice place where they're living. And you paint this picture of kind of this bohemian, I mean, the book's called Bohemian's West, right? But this bohemian social atmosphere that's kind of growing in San Francisco. Can you kind of describe that 1920s and then into the 1930s scene of who are these people that are coming to, it's not like they they have a salon, but they're coming to their house and having these gatherings and meetings. What's the social world then that they are finding so much joy in in the twenties and thirties there in San Francisco, in the Bay area?
1: They, their earlier years together were primarily, um, Color with their involvement in the political issues of the time. And we haven't really scratched the surface of that labor issues, uh, anti war, free speech, women's suffrage, all that kind of stuff. But when they finally did get together, they wanted to put politics aside. And of course, this is after the war, the Red Scare, and they're getting disillusioned that they were not really able to change the world in the way they had hoped.
0: And we should say it was often politics. I mean, maybe we can pause for a second because at times politics is what divided them the most sharply, but it's also what united them. Can you highlight really quick, maybe like what some of the issues that uh, that they disagreed on, but then also came together on in, in that world of politics? Because eventually poetry, I mean, is really what really brings them together. But in politics, it was kind of a mixed bag, wasn't it?
1: Yes. It's really in suffrage where you begin to see a difference. And that is in the context of the second uh, campaign for Woodrow Wilson when he's running for re-election in, 1916, the National Women's Party was very unhappy with Woodrow Wilson because he would not come out in favor of a federal amendment. He personally claimed he favored it, but as a Southern Democrat, he was not going to do anything to help move that forward because the Southern Democrats did not want to enfranchise African-American women in particular. So many people know the rather sad story of the racial aspect of this story. So Sarah, however, was adamant with the National Women's Party that a federal amendment must be brought forward. And the party's position during 1916 was to go around the country and urge women voters and any other fellow travelers to vote against any party that did not support the federal amendment or any candidate that did not support the federal amendment. They believed this one issue Uh, was the most important, and they could use their electoral power, particularly in Western states, to defeat anybody who wasn't going to support them. So it's kind of a threatening, if you don't support us, we're going to push you out of office. Well, Erskine thought this was a very bad idea. He didn't like it at all. First of all, he didn't think it would work. But secondly, although he despised the war and was upset with Woodrow Wilson for getting us involved in the war, he decided that Wilson was still the better of all the other uh, candidates and so he was very supportive of Woodrow Wilson's reelection. So first of all, they're on opposite sides of that, but then they begin to get engaged in the debate about these tactics in the context of women's suffrage, and that is when Sarah really, I think, becomes most forceful in her opposition to him in a political issue, where he is telling her, "You women have to wait." And, you know, that's just the worst thing you could say, right, at this point. We are sick and tired of waiting, she was saying. We are not going to wait. You would not say that if you were the one who had never been enfranchised. And uh, so they they really um, have pretty fierce differences about that. And my favorite kind of moment in this context is when she says to him, I am bigger than you. And uh, what she meant by that was that she was braver, she was more willing to take risks in this campaign, and she was more dedicated to the principles of equality than he was. So she was talking when she says this about suffrage, but I think that just below the surface, she was also talking about their relationship, that you know she had done all these things, lived up to their ideal sacrifice, been braver than he had been. And uh, she doesn't really change his mind about this. He just, he still thought it was a bad idea. Uh, but um, ultimately, what Sarah wanted was for Wilson to be reelected, but for him to lose the West. And that wasn't the case. He, For instance, California put him over the top, no. and it was women voters who helped him. But that's one area where there was a, a real disagreement. She was pushing him on other issues as well, wanting him to go forward more publicly on some labor cases and so forth. And he was resistant and getting angry with her for pushing him he was not used to such an assertive uh, partner at this point in his life
0: and here's what we really see kind of sarah from this somewhat naive starstruck you know young woman right uh to what she's become it's a real transformation Um,
1: absolutely right and also if i can just add this and you might not want to use this but um you know her husband. I have great sympathy for him, and yet sometimes I find him also a difficult personality. And in, when he became aware that she was going to leave him, she did it by writing him a letter. He wrote back to her, and he wrote in the way you would expect from his religious perspective. And he tried to bring her back into the fold, not only of the family, but of you know Christian righteous marriage. This was not going to work with her. She had so moved away from that. But he never gave up. But as time went on, and there this is the other thing about this archive. I mean, there are letters between Erskine and Ergot, you know, and they're dueling this out. It's like that, you know, this religious perspective and then Erskine's secular perspective, and they just go at each other, and it's just incredible. I loved it. I had my editor made me cut out some of it because I just it was just so rich. But anyway, he gets very angry. He's just, just so angry with everybody, and he gets angry with her. And you mentioned that he does come down to the San Francisco area and he lives over the bay uh, in Berkeley with the kids. That he, and he just made this dictum. I never want them to be in the room with Erskine. And of course she refused to, to abide by that. But he, when the, when the son is killed, he just really loses it. And she was at the wheel. She was driving the car. So he held her responsible. And she was with Erskine and the kids. I mean, this was just to him the worst possible thing, the worst possible. How could you do this to our son? And he said to her, you, you killed our son. Well, so when Erskine does, you know, begin to, you know, anyway, he begins to write very nasty, nasty letters. And she finally uh, writes back to him and will not take this anymore from him. For many, many years, she had allowed him to express his anger. Uh, she understood it, really. I mean, she did understand it, but only really finally after the son dies and he writes a couple more pretty nasty letters does she also stand up to him. And that was maybe harder for her to do in a way because she did feel tremendous remorse. I don't think guilt, but she was very she was very sorry that she had hurt him so badly. Yeah. So, okay. Do you want to now go back to the art stuff?
0: Yeah, let's uh, go to California. Okay. Let's uh, – right. why don't you paint that scene for us?
1: So by the time that Sarah recovered and it took her a while to recover from this horrific accident and the deep guilt she did feel for that we're into the red scare period and they were so disillusioned by what had happened they thought they were going to change the world and they realized they had not so they decided to pull away and pull away from politics and really now focus on developing their artistic abilities and cultivate friends, not like Emma Goldman or Margaret Sanger, who had been friends and acquaintances, but instead with writers and artists and poets and musicians. They knew the young Ansel Adams, for instance. And some of the, the artists may not be as familiar. They really weren't to me. But Robert Stackpole, a sculptor, and um, Yehudi – oh, gosh um, – some musicians uh, who would be well known to people who know music so they were really inviting those people to come into their house they had a beautiful home up on russian hill which by the way is still there and uh, they'd be you they know trying to have kind of salons and evenings and things like that with these people so they were moving now into a life where beauty and art and Uh, expression, poetic expression will be the centerpieces of their lives. And they were able to achieve that. The problem was, though, that they were so popular and so well-liked that they could not find time to write. So it's at that point where they decided we need to pull away from the city. And they moved down to Los Gatos, which is down the peninsula, found a beautiful piece of property, built a beautiful home there, which they called the Cats. Mm -hmm. It was also a place where they would bring people. John Steinbeck was there. Robinson Jeffers was there. Uh, uh, but they also had places on the property, their own little study, where they could go and work on their poetry. And so that is what happened. So the last, and they had about 25 years together. Uh, Erskine lived to be 91. He died in 1944. Sarah lived to be 91. She died in 1974. You know, the arc of this story, just the two of them, <laughs> 1852, to, it was a long story. Anyway, they were able to achieve real happiness there uh the issue of um you know monogamy disappeared once they lived together it was no longer an issue the issue of sacrifice was over they could really commit themselves to their writing and to creating a beautiful life together which they did but i also want to add at cost to others so there's just you know no doubt about that
0: what do you think's particularly western about their their lives and experiences do you see ways in which this would have played out differently had they been living in the Midwest or on the East Coast or maybe even in Greenwich Village where the world was kind of a you know a bohemian world, you know. But what's what's unique about this happening in Portland and Northern California?
1: When I started this project, I was expecting to find a really strong thesis about the westernness of this story. I was hoping to find it. I was hungry to find it.
0: You're a western historian, that's what you do. I
1: know, I know exactly. So I was really looking and, you know, I have to admit, although I use the word in the title, I would not say this is uniquely Western or even especially Western, although there are aspects of it that would have played out differently had it not happened in the West. So as you already indicated, the importance of the suffrage movement and the role in which Sarah played would have been different had she been in other places. So that's maybe the strongest case I can make for how... This is a Western story to be sure.
0: But Oregon's a hotbed I, of progressive And that's uh, true. Politics as well, which, which Erskine's then involved with, right?
1: Yes, exactly. That's true. So but it's also kind of like Cleveland in that respect. So but yeah, for the West, Portland was the place, right, where progressive uh in, innovations were first happening and, you know, California was coming along as well. But I have to say, Brendan, that what I've concluded is that what I'm what I'm saying here is that we normally associate this kind of behavior, these kinds of ideas about free love anyway, with Greenwich Village. Almost everything that's been written about the 19-teens and these kinds of issues and relationships focus on New York City and Greenwich Village. So what I discovered in this was that that might be the center of this, but it was happening in other places as well. And even in the Midwest, there were people who were exercising, Clarence Darrow, maybe exhibit number one, yeah, right? yeah. of living this kind of life and embracing these kinds of freedoms. I was absolutely stunned, actually, by the number of women friends of Sarah in the suffrage movement who were, they wouldn't necessarily have defined themselves as free lovers, but they were engaging in sex outside of marriage. Uh So it was that was interesting for me to learn that these practices, these behaviors were not solely in bohemian enclaves like Greenwich Village. The other thing is that these people knew each other. There was an incredible uh, community, even though it was cross continental, and they were going back and forth and seeing each other quite often. So I guess what I would say in conclusion is that there are Western aspects of the story, but it's really a national story. Uh, and I'm looking at the Western chapter that I think has not been acknowledged.
0: Hmm. And finally,
1: I mean, they did love California and the West. So uh, I had to cut so much from this manuscript. My original <laughs> was 900 pages. You know, right? I, so I had to cut it in half at least. But they loved Western landscapes. You know, Erskine loves going out camping in the Harney Desert and Eastern Oregon. They were both write beautifully about the West and the landscape, but they were never making. They never saw themselves as Westerners. I was waiting for them to, and you know, frankly, he was born in Erie, Pennsylvania, and you know, his first twenty-one years were lived in the East, and Sarah too. They did not particularly call themselves Westerners, although they lived in the West and they wanted to stay in the West. So the Westernness isn't quite as dramatic as I had hoped.
0: Hmm. Do you find some some of these early echoes of? kind of the California, not California dream, but kind of this mythology of California as this magical, beautiful, artistic place, you know, that really comes over the top, you know, in the 60s. Are you going to San Francisco with flowers in your hair? Are you seeing Mm -hmm. some of the early echoes of that throughout their story?
1: Yes. I have to say, first of all, I'm a total convert to the California mythology. (laughs) That song was a very important one in my life. Uh, when Scott McKenzie sang that song, I was sitting back in Indiana wanting to go to California with flowers in my hair. So, yes, I do believe they are people who are uh, contributing to that uh, image of California. But the thing is that they actually lived it. So that's, you know, it wasn't a mythology. They loved um, the climate of of Southern Cal- of California. They did not want to go to Southern California. Southern California was, you know, ugh, didn't like that at all, except for they kind of like Laguna. <laughs> but uh, you know, they had this beautiful you know estate with you know, lemon trees and uh, they really did find paradise there and they they well if they didn't find it they created it and the California and what it had to offer at that time made it pretty easy to make it into a very nice place. San Francisco also was lovely, you know. Now people say oh it's so crowded and awful, but they were there maybe before those terrible things happened. I don't know, but yeah.
0: But they're also there, I mean, you note know, that John Steinbeck, you know comes through their home and, and this is also the area where he's projecting a very a very complicated view of mm-hmm. what life is like in California in the nineteen thirties. Well,
1: yeah. yes, you're making a really important point here uh, they saw themselves as bohemians, I believe they truly were committed to justice and equality and you know, economic equality—not if not equality, at least some redistribution of income. I mean, all of those things I do believe they truly supported. However, what had a lot of money, and they did not live as people normally associate Bohemians living. They lived a very rich, beautiful life that was made possible by his law career and the money that he made. And he was a man who loved beautiful things, and he would not deprive himself of them. So they come under some criticism from people for that. They see this as one of those paradoxes, actually, that you brought up earlier. They claim they're bohemians, but they're living like rich people. And he, this was pointed out to Erskine by Emma Goldman. You know, you claim that you're an anarchist, but, you know, you're living like a rich lawyer. And he said to her, you're right. But you guys, you anarchists need us wealthier people because, first of all, we will work pro bono for you. <laughs> and we also – people will listen to us. You know, We are your political um, fellow travelers. And so when I go to my men's club, uh, people will at least listen to me where they would never listen to you. So he always had an answer uh, for these uh, paradoxes and contradictions in his life. And Sarah felt a little much – she actually felt guilty about sometimes about how well they were living. And uh, would try to share it with other people as a way to to appease some of her, uh, I don't know if guilt's the right word, but recognition that they were not exactly poor poets living in poverty like you're supposed to when you're a true bohemian.
0: Yeah, especially because she had that early life experience in Burma and India. I mean, she saw poverty and that really had done something to to her, you know, to give her kind of an awareness. Uh, Yes, yes. Well, as historians or others um, you know read through this book, what, what, are, what, what are you hoping that people will take away from this? Like, what are the groups of historians or scholars or subfields that you think need to reevaluate things in light of, uh, of these two people's lives?:
1: I intended this book primarily for a general audience and to read as a biography or a biography of a relationship. And I'm not really trying to make any sort of historiographical interventions here. And when i talk to historians about this, I often find they want to know what you just asked me really. What what, what should we do and, with this?
0: Like what what's your yeah, what's your, right, what's your uh, point? Or like, right, what
1: we- exactly, right, exactly. So so here is my point. My point is to tell this very complicated story, uh to give a human sort of granular, that's a word you're I'm hearing too much these days, but view of the lived experience, what it was to actually live this kind of life, whether it's the political aspects of it as a suffragist or as a free lover or as a poet. That's what I'm trying to get at here. And I do some context. I had to cut, as I said, a lot. I had a lot more context in the original version as well. But primarily, I'm interested in giving, putting into the hands of people and possibly students A book that will take them into that world in a very sort of personal and even intimate way and give a sense of what people were dealing with, how they perceived their world and what their solutions to the problems were. Mm -hmm. So I don't engage in historiographical discussion anywhere in the book. And I'm really not making a scholarly argument here. That isn't the kind of book that I had intended. And um, so some I think scholars and historians might be disappointed and that that's what they were looking for. Uh, so it's a very different book than I've done before. And when I set out, I wasn't sure I could do it because uh, I kept wanting to tell people what to think. And I thought I should draw back and not tell them what to think. Let me try to present the story as honestly as I can, because I think in the end, the purpose of this is less to convince people something about the era or even about free love, but instead to get people to think about, as I read this, uh because this is what happened to me when I was going to the library. I was reading these letters and I would think, wow, what, what kind of decisions have I made? What kind of choices have I made? And you begin to reflect more about that kind of life. Uh, the other night I was doing a Zoom and a person introduced the book as a novel. And I didn't want to correct her on the spot. But later in the conversation, I was able to say, this is actually a work of nonfiction that I hope reads like a novel. And uh, so um, – You know, when I was in graduate school, I did a field in American literature, and I had a wonderful professor at the University of Washington named Martha Bonta, and we were mostly doing independent study, and so I would go into her office, and we would talk about Henry James and Mark Twain, and begin to unpeel those texts, and I would feel like, in those conversations, now we're really talking about what matters in life. You know, we were not talking about the bigger picture, the panorama, the group dynamics, you know, the social uh, forces and all that kind of stuff, which most of the time I was interested in doing in my own work. But there's something about novels and a story like this that I think touches readers in a different way. And so that's what I was trying to achieve. Um, Along the way, I think you can learn. You can learn something about the suffrage movement. You can learn about labor. You can learn about anti-imperialism and the peace movement, but that is not the primary purpose of the book.
0: Well, I think it's powerful, you know, to have a historian use all the tools in their toolkit of historical methodology and digging in archives and knowing what kinds of kinds of questions to ask and then using it to um, tell a story instead of beating us over the head with analysis well, and historiography. Um, <laughs> I mean, and I think analysis and historiography yeah. is important and it gets us to Think about the present day in really critical ways. But there's another way to do that, which, so by setting some of that aside, I think you accomplish a lot of the same big picture, thought provoking things, but um, in a very different way that the rest of us don't have the, you know, the writing skills perhaps to do. So <laughs> I commend you on that. Well, thank uh,
1: you. Well, thanks. I, I would say it was maybe the biggest challenge was that this archive was so huge. There were, something like 2,700 letters just between Erskine and Sarah. And then you have the letters to and from their children, to and from their spouses, their sisters, brothers, parents, and all those very famous friends of theirs as well. So it was an enormous archive at the Huntington primarily, but they also have letters at Berkeley and University of Oregon. So that was the biggest challenge of all, was to take this humongous uh, information and try to put it into a narrative that made sense. And so when cuts had to come, I had to cut the context. Uh, I never was engaging in historiography, but I was trying to provide more context. And also I had to cut a lot of the family stuff that I just loved and was sorry to have to put aside. But my editor said, you know, not everybody's going to be as interested as you are in these two people and in the family. So, uh, and he was right. I think it's still not a short book, but has a better pace now.
0: Well, congrats on the book. It's wonderful. And um, I really appreciate you spending a little time with us to talk about it today, Sherry.
1: Thank you, Brendan, for having me. It was a delight to talk to you.
0: All right. Take care.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave a review on whatever app or platform you're using, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast, or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Redd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer, Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O.com. I'll go ahead and put that link in the episode description if you didn't catch it. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critiques my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. You can find out more on my website, b w R-E-N-S-I-N-K, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. That's B-R-E-N-D-E-N-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K. One last plug. If you live in the Intermountain West, check out the Red Center's digital public history project, Intermountain Histories, by visiting intermountainhistories.org or by downloading the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and mobile app, you can read carefully curated stories about complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Well, until next month, be well, be curious, be kind.